Memory is a powerful shaper of identity. We carry biblical narratives and poems around in our memories, and they shape our lives. Some years ago, we had a visiting preacher who asked that we each think of those here at Lakeshore who are role models for us. I immediately thought of two people, Minnie Herring Cole and Jan Williams. They were both active in our Sunday school class in their more mature years. They both welcomed us into their, our, their homes for Sunday school class lunches and demonstrated hospitality on many occasions. Years before Libby and I came to Lakeshore, the two of them had taught a young adult Sunday school class that shaped, uh, shaped lives in ways that lasted for Lakeshore people who have today taken their place in their more mature years. Minnie was a fine teacher who studied and thought a great deal about her faith. She, along with her first husband, Gail Herring, engaged Lakeshoreans in serious conversations about deep questions of faith. She was a great friend and daily bore witness to a spirit of kindness. What I most remember from many is that when something untoward happened to someone, her consistent response was, there but by the grace of God go I. I think of that often with Minnie's name attached to it. Gracious is the adjective that comes to mind for this saint of Lakeshore. She lovingly accepted and embraced us all and lived the kind of spirit we still need. Many bore witness to a mature spirituality. And Minnie and Jan loved to laugh. Things Jan Williams did are still fondly remembered in our Sunday school class. Often after our opening prayer, she would say, Bill, something in the prayer reminded me that we also need to pray for someone else. Her concerns for others were wide-ranging. She volunteered for Meals on Wheels for many years. Sometimes I would say something about a biblical text and she would say in a quiet but clear voice, yes, that's right, and I hate it. <laughs> she hated it because she said she would have trouble living it. On many occasions, she would respond to comments with, hmm, interesting. Libby and I still say, interesting, in just that way. We all knew that man, that meant that Jan would work on that concept as part of her faith journey. Jan bore witness to a gritty kind of spirituality. Minnie and Jan were salt and pepper for decades, for several decades in this community of faith. They were both early women deacons at Lakeshore. They both cared for those in need and enjoyed all of life. 
I am grateful for these saints who now enjoy the new Jerusalem and continue to shape my life and our lives in hope and in ever-growing faith. These are our sacred, sacred stories. Thanks be to God. Six or seven years ago, I decided to spend a summer afternoon cleaning my bookshelves in my office. Amid all the decisions about what books to keep and what books to give away, I suddenly found myself in stacks of books and in a puddle of tears. I realized that some decisions posed no difficult choices. All the books by Frederick Beekner had a place on the shelf. All Those Two by Henry Nowen, by Barbara Brown Taylor, Kathleen Norris, Eugene Peterson. No Question About Books by Madeline Lingle, Anne Lamott, Michael Main, John O'Donohue, Rachel Remen. As Beekner said, pay attention to your tears. And when I paid attention to my tears and to my books, I realized that the writers of all of them had been close friends and spiritual guides throughout my ministry. They'd given me mercy in my own griefs and guided me through passages of pastoral care for others. They had offered me wisdom and soothed me with beauty and poetry and humor. They'd been a constant presence no farther than six feet away in my office. Today their pages fall open to passages I love, circled again and again in pen and pencils like lines of hymns in my memory. When I began my ministry, all these writers were alive, writing and publishing in the world in which I lived. And it occurred to me that it was in the realm of possibilities that I might be able to meet at least some of them face to face. And so, as it happened, blessing of blessings, I've gotten to meet most of these spiritual guides. I had a chance to hear Eugene Peterson when he was at Truett in 2005. And then in 2007, I joined an ecumenical group of ministers for a summer conference at the Collegeville Institute in Minnesota. It was called The Writing Life with Eugene Peterson. He was at the table of 10, quietly taking in our questions, encouraging us to write by gathering inspiration from the life of the congregations where we served. For him, the silence the praying, the singing, the listening, the waiting, the being present 
were the teaching tools that he used. While sitting at that table, I kept thinking of the time many years before, I, before that I had left Waco for an interview in Washington, D.C. As I was leaving, a friend pressed a book into my hand saying, read this on the plane. On the flight home, considering what the job would mean for my life, I opened the book. It was Eugene Peterson's Under the Unpredictable Plant. I took to heart Peterson's words in the third chapter about experiencing church with the same congregation for several generations. His words changed my life. And the world has been changed by Peterson's words in the message. While pastoring a Presbyterian church in Bel Air, Maryland, Peterson reached, realized that he was preaching to a congregation of people, he said, who didn't read books. And so Peterson, a scholar of ancient languages, began translating the Psalms into the language of his congregation to teach them how to pray. He continued rendering the Old Testament, the New Testament, into their language, and suddenly they started paying attention in a way that they never had before. He spent 12 years refreshing scripture, making it accessible for his church members. Peterson was good with a pen, but the deeper reason his words spoke to so many readers is because of the depth of the way God's word reverberated in his own soul. The world needed Eugene Peterson. The world needs more people like him still, profoundly congruent persons who so evidently translate God's humility, love, and grace, but who also don't seem fully aware of their influence, at least not in ways that alter their simple, authentic goodness. Eugene Peterson died three weeks ago tomorrow, on October 22nd, at his home in Lakeside, Montana. He was 85. I will always be encouraged in my ministry by his words, some from the books on my office shelf, bookshelf. And I'm confident that his words will encourage ministers for generations to come. The strength of my confidence grows out of a story that Claire Helton told me about two years ago, and then I talked to her about it again last week. With Claire's blessing and permission, here's the way she tells that story. She said, I had been in a seminary class on the writings of Eugene Peterson. One of the assignments was to write a blog post in response to chapter three, where Peterson discussed the role of the minister who is with the same congregation for several generations. I wrote about Charlotte in my blog, and then months later, I mentioned it to her in passing one afternoon. She asked, what was the book that you were writing about? When I named Peterson's Under the Unpredictable Plant, we came full circle as she, as, I, as she, as I said, oh yes, and in fact, a passage from the book is one of the reasons I stayed. So the circle keeps circling around. Claire and I have sh shared our ministry here, and she is preaching right now as a prelude to the new shape of her pastoral life. We're only two of the countless ministers who have been shaped and changed by Eugene Peterson. And we are grateful for those around the world and in this congregation who have been guided by Peterson's words.
I will give thanks for this humble saint of God every time I read a passage like this from the 12th chapter of Romans from the message. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for God. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Amen. Amelia was in labor with her first child when she fell asleep and dreamt she carried in her arms the child still in her womb. An angel appeared and addressed the child, Thecla. Three times the dream repeated, with the angel calling the child Thecla each time. How do you receive a dream that seems to carry divine presence? How do you receive a child an angel wants you to name after a famous saint said to have baptized herself and whose own mother tried unsuccessfully to have her killed. Amelia was given the parting gift of easy labor, and when she awoke, the child was placed in her arms, her dream realized. She named her daughter Macrina after her grandmother. Macrina was the oldest of nine children when she was an adolescent, her father tried against her wishes to marry her off for her own safety. Her life in this way almost repeated Amelia's, but when her fiancé died, she convinced her parents it would be awkward in the resurrection if she had married someone else. Able to live as a holy virgin, Macrina attached herself to her mother. I wonder if her parents quite knew what to do with her. Amelia joked that she was pregnant with all her other children for the usual nine months, but Macrina, she bore with her always and everywhere. Macrina received no formal training, no education, but her little brother, Gregory of Nyssa, did receive some of the best education in the region. Still, he called his older sister, Didaskalos, teacher, and describes her citing whole memorized passages from Plato, the Stoics, and the Epicureans, whom she challenged with truths from Christian scripture. The second oldest sibling in Macrina's family, and the oldest boy, received the very best education of the day, 
traveling to Athens to study under the luminaries of rhetoric, law, and philosophy. In Athens, Basil was a star, and he returned to their family home, as Gregory puts it, monstrously conceited. Macrina took him in hand, exhorted him to monastic virtue, and directed him to manual labor. By that point, their father had died, and Macrina had convinced her mother, Amelia, that they should turn their home into a monastic community and invite the servants to join them as equals, sharing together in a common life. What was it like, I wonder, for Amelia to become her daughter's spiritual daughter, to follow her into the vocation Macrina sensed more clearly and urgently than she? What was it like for her daughter to upend the life she knew? Basil observed this domestic monastic life of mother and daughter, which would become important to him later as he reformed and institutionalized monasticism. He has come through history as Basil the Great, one of the three preeminent Eastern doctors of the church, a father of communal monasticism. I don't imagine Macrina was an easy woman to live with, but she did help make the people around her better versions of themselves. Four of Amelia's children were named saints, as was Amelia herself. Through her life, Macrina was a figure of hope, by which I mean she reminded people of their Christian hope, so that they did not get too lost in despair or ambition or fame. She helped her mother bear the loss of a son, a brother moderate his worldly plans, another brother suffer the treacheries of fourth century church politics. She stabilized the emotional life of her family and her monastic community, orienting them toward Christ. One day, a lump was found in Macrina's breast. Emilia begged Macrina to see a doctor, but Macrina, having lived under the specter of violent male lust, refused. Sickened by her daughter's refusal of medical treatment, Emilia cajoled, entreated, begged her to reconsider. Macrina would not. Instead, she prostrated herself on the ground, wept, and prayed. Mixing some dirt from the ground with her tears, she gave the mud salve to her mother and asked her to make the sign of a cross over her breast. Amelia did, and Macrina was healed, a little scar testifying to the miracle, even after her death years later. Macrina's last words were words of love to Christ, her bridegroom. In death, she was covered with the dark cloak of Amelia, but her body glowed beneath, streaming rays of light and another witness to God's presence in her life. We have this story that we don't know mo about most holy women in antiquity because our little brother Gregory wrote about her. He actually wrote two books about her, one describing her life and another retelling a platonic dialogue with Macrina playing the role of Socrates. Both were written after Macrina's death. Even after her death, Gregory, it seems, was still working out how to receive and pass on his sister's life and witness, which was so demanding and so filled with love, so devoted and so disobedient, so marked both by divine longing and divine presence. 